Welcome everyone to episode 32 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is San Diego firefighter Ben Vernon. Now I had the pleasure of meeting Ben live in person in Columbus back in January. We both were presenters at the Ohio Association of Professional Firefighters Winter Educational Conference. I gotta tell you, I'm so glad that I gotta open up for him because he's not a guy that I would want to follow at all. Um, He's got a pretty traumatic story from actually being on duty. Uh, They had a drunk patient down at the trolley stop. Typical call that we've probably all been on. But they had an unruly felon bystander with him. And that bystander ended up stabbing Ben twice. Missed uh, missed the headshot. And also stabbed his partner three, three times as well. So this is the longest episode I've done. And it's actually going to be a two-parter, in fact. On this episode, Ben is just going to talk about that physical trauma, the the scene itself, and also then the mental trauma that that really started and what was keeping him from work and not even letting him sleep. So next week, we're actually going to bring Ben's clinician, Dr. Mark Foreman, in, and we'll we'll start it right where Ben and, and Dr. Foreman met, and we'll go from there on next week's episode. But for now... I'll just shut up and we'll tag in Ben. All right, welcome everyone to the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. I've got a very special guest from all the way from San Diego. I, I was tempted to say San Diego, but I know you would want to punch me in the face if I did that. And uh, Will Ferrell ruined my city. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to end. I actually want you to tell the story you told me the first night I met you about him, but we'll do that at the very end. How does that sound? You're talking about when uh, he came through San well, don't, Diego? Don't stop. Yeah, don't say anything further. Don't All give right. it away. All right. Don't give it away. People will want to stick around just for that. They don't give a shit okay. about you and me. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me more about Ron Burgundy. Yeah. So um, when did you start being a firefighter there in San Diego? Um, 2006 is when I started the Academy for San Diego City Fire. And I hit my first day on probation, 2007, January 13th, 2007. Okay. All right. And uh, it wasn't very long before you were doing all sorts of hazmat and rescue stuff as well. Is that right? Yeah, I, I knew right away in the academy, they kind of introduced us to all the special teams that were available to us. So, yeah, I mean, from day one of the academy, I had my eyes set on the what I, what I call all the really fun stuff, um, hazmat and USAR and technical rescue team. Um, I, I just I wanted to do all the most dangerous stuff. So, All right. Going kind of fast forwarding and jumping into it in, in June of 2015, what, what station were you at? What house? So I was at station four downtown. It's on Park or uh, 8th and J right in front of Petco Park. And I was on the heavy rescue team, but the station, uh, station four has a fire engine and then our USAR rig, our heavy rescue. So the way we worked it is um, the engine was the busiest engine in the city at the time. So we would rotate, you do usually two shifts on the engine and then two shifts on rescue to kind of give you a little break. Uh, so I was on the engine that day, June 24th, and we 
run on average 25 to 30 calls a ship. So we're, I, I saw the stats, we were ranked like fourth in the nation, fourth busiest engine in the nation. Um, and so you just, you know, when you come in in the morning and you know you're on the engine, you just, you kind of brace for, for what's going to be a rough shift and easily the busiest after midnight. So we just ran dozens and dozens of calls and a lot of them were all-nighters. So and it, uh, for June 24th, what? That, that just puts things in perspective. You're 24 to, or, you know, 25, 30 runs a day. I mean, right. I, I think I'm on a busy end, and, and we average around 12 to probably 15, you know, normal. And we're like, oh, this is too much. And you're doing twice that every day. Yeah. But see, the, the funny thing is, is it's designed that way. First of all, we have a huge homeless population in the heart of downtown. And then we're, we're on a very tight grid. So a lot of our calls, you know, you run the person's on a street corner. You pick them up and put them in an ambulance. They drive away. And then you're done. You know, so the call takes minutes, you know, it's not very fast. We have other districts. I'm sure you're the same way where just the response time to get somewhere is a good, you know, three, four, five minutes just to get there. Um, and then if it's, you know, a huge apartment complex, you're walking quite a distance in with us, these high rises, um, a majority of our patients are on the streets. And then if they're in high rise, you know, we, we quickly get them down, into the ambulance. So our, our turnover is very, very quick. And that kind of allows us, I think, to run more calls. Okay. No, that makes sense. I follow you on that. So let's fast forward to that date, that June 24th, right around four o'clock, you get yet another run down to the trolley stop. You want to, you want to speak on a trolley stop for a second? Cause I know that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's oh, everybody, everybody, stop. wherever they're at, they have, some type trolley of stop. trolley stop or bus stop, Greyhound, whatever it may be, they have something similar to that. Yeah, so the first of all, you know, to highlight June 24, 2015, I'm almost murdered, right? And I got, uh, I got attacked by a bystander on a medical aid, and it put me and my partner in the hospital, uh, and we, you know, could have died. Um, the trolley stop, just like you said, every every district, every department has a trolley stop or some place like it. And for us, you know, there are trolley security guards. They patrol those areas. There's a high turnover. You know, people are coming and going. It's a metropolitan, so people are, are hustling and bustling. It's one of the last stops right before Petco Park. So anytime uh, there's a game or an event, you know, that place is packed and the trolley is full. Our security guards um, are patrolling and they're looking for anybody that's out of place. They're making sure people have tickets. You know, they're, they're busy. Um, our joke was, you know, we thought their sole purpose was just to run up calls for us. Um, anybody that looked out of place, they immediately would grab them and call 911. And, you know, half the time we were turfing these patients because they weren't patients. You know, they were just somebody that was, you know, homeless that didn't have a place to go and the trolley guys wanted to move along and they didn't have anywhere to go. So they refused. And so they'd call us and we'd get there and, Hey man, you know, these, this isn't a patient. What are you doing? Um, so this, this June 24th, uh, we were on our 10th call of the day and it was our third time at the trolley stop. So we were, you know, complacent, I think is the word I try to share with most of the fire departments I speak to complacent. I, we'd already been there three times 
that day, let alone how many times that month. And uh, when we pulled up on scene, I had my window down, and from a block away, I could hear my patient uh, being belligerent. He was uh, drunk, highly intoxicated. Um, and to be fair, this was a legit patient. This guy, uh, 50s, mid-50s, homeless, um, was drinking like a gallon of vodka. So the guy was just trashed. Um, what we didn't know prior to our arrival is that this time was a little different because their patient was a this drunk guy and he was listing forward and kept falling off his park bench that he had chosen to sit on. And at the same time, they saw him, a bystander, a homeless bystander also saw him. Um, and they both, both the trolley security guards and this bystander uh, converged on this guy at the same time and everybody wanted to help him. And so um, the, the problem with that is the bystander who I affectionately, he tried to stab me to death. So I called him Stabby. Uh, Stabby doesn't want to leave. He wants to help. He doesn't like authority. He doesn't agree with authority. He's very hostile towards the trolley security guards. And so for about 10, 15 minutes prior to our arrival, the trolley guys, instead of helping the drunk guy, are interacting with this bystander and, and nobody's getting along and everyone's getting frustrated with everybody and everyone's getting angry. And so by this fashion, we show up on there. There's a really, there's a hotbed, you know, blood is boiling and people are pissed at each other. And we kind of walk into this scene completely oblivious to what's going on. Um, we normally, just like every other fire department, you know, we like to park right by our patient, right by our call. But because the trolley tracks run down the street, we had to park a block away and, and walk in. And so we, uh, you know, for me being complacent, I kind of bring the bare minimum gear. I'm going to check this guy's blood sugar. I'm going to make sure that he's alert and oriented times three. Uh, I'm going to make sure he can walk. Um, a few steps at least, and then we're probably going to try and turf this guy on PD and make him a, a candidate for the drunk tank. Um, so that's kind of where my head's at, and uh, I was discussing it with my crew as we're walking towards the call. Hey, let's get this guy to the drunk tank. You know, let's get PD involved, and let's get them in route so that we can transfer him to the drunk tank. And my crew is more than excited to to do this. Could, so we could you, walk in. Would you would you mind going over the drunk tank? Because when you talked about oh, that, yeah. that was I don't have anything like that. And and I, you guys don't do that in Ohio. Not where I'm at. And believe me, we really probably should. But go ahead, explain the drunk tank yeah. to everybody. All right. So our our rule in San Diego uh, and fire department and PD have an agreement that if the patient is alert and oriented times three. Uh, vitals are good, sugar's good, and the guy can walk three feet. It's that three-foot rule that really gets everybody. So the three-foot rule, what we'll do is we'll check them. We're good. We get PD on scene. PD kind of stands back, and we're like, all right, we're going to do the drunk tank test. And you can see PD's not excited about it. And we'll stand the patient up, and then we'll stand just a short distance away and say, come here, you know, walk to me. And we're just trying to see if the guy can make it three feet. Now, about half the time, you know, the guy takes that first two steps and then he kind of teeters and everybody holds their breath because we're thinking one more step and he can go to the drunk tank. And PD is going, dude, if he stumbles, he's not going with us. He's going with the fire, you know, fire department. So 
you know, these guys will take that second step and then they teeter and everyone kind of holds their breath. And I had a cop behind me, stand behind me one time, and he was trying to blow the guy over with his breath. You know, he's just going like the big bad wolf, trying to get the guy to fall back. Um, and so, yeah, we have that. It's a, it's a fun game. We call it the three-foot game. Um, <laughs> so that's that's uh, where we were at as we were walking you, to you our had, You had stage. that, yeah, that was already in mind when you were walking there, like, hey. Oh, yeah. We're, we're yeah, going. This guy, yeah, this guy's going to the drunk tank. He's got, I, I don't care what I have to do. I'm going to get him to walk three feet. And that's, that's where our mind was. And so, again, complacency, you know, we're, we're, we're focusing on the wrong thing. You know, we're not – we're ready to play a funny game and, and turf this guy um, instead of kind of being alert and oriented and ready for anything that downtown provides. So. Nice. <laughs> Excuse me. No, no. So – so I, uh, I threw you, I threw you off there. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. I, I need my coffee to keep me going. So taking a coffee break. <laughs> so yeah, we uh, we decided we're gonna play the three foot game. That's that's where our heads at. Uh, we arrive on scene. There are five security guards with guns. There are four of us uh, on you know professional fully te- full time paid firefighters on a crew. So there's nine of us. It's 4 p.m. on a Wednesday. It's a beautiful San Diego weather, June 24th, um, 22 degrees, partly cloudy. We're in a public space outside, and, you know, I mean, it couldn't be a more perfect day. Um, there's a bubble, you know, there's, a, there's nine of us. So just the, the thought that anything bad could happen just wasn't even on my mind. You know, didn't even think it was possible. So the first person I interacted with was Stabby. Uh, he wanted to give me a turnover. He, you know, he, he didn't use our terminology. He didn't speak our language. He rambled a lot. He didn't provide a lot of useful information. You know, not like you got a turnover from an EMT, off-duty EMT. You know, they'd be straight to the point and you'd tell you exactly what you need. This guy's kind of all over the place. Um, I placated him. I listened to him. And after about 30 seconds, I said, you know, I, I appreciate everything you're giving me. You're very helpful. Um, I'll take over from here. And I got it. And he was surprisingly uh, compliant. He said, okay. He said, thanks. And he grabbed his backpack, which was sitting on the ground, threw it over his shoulder, and he walked away. And so he kind of walked away behind me, uh, going in a different direction. And so as far as I was concerned, out of sight, out of mind, I turned all my attention toward my patient. Uh, my patient is is hammered. Like I said, he drank a gallon of vodka, so he is he is just being belligerent and rude, um, not cooperating. You know, just kind of the worst patient you could hope for. But all my focus is on him. I'm going to win him over. It's my plan. I'm going to be super nice, and I'm going to get this drunk guy to be on my side. And uh, and so I did. You know, I I said, hey, you know, can you answer can you answer the alert only questions? Can you tell me your name? And and he's like, hey, you know. I, I, I want to just stand up and salute everybody. I, I want to salute you guys. And I said, well, that's really very nice of you. Thank you. Uh, but we don't need that right now. I just need you to tell me your name. And he's like, how come nobody let me salute them? And, and so he's just, I'm getting frustrated because I want that learn North times three so that I can stand them up, walk three feet, drunk tank. That's kind of where I'm at. And so I said, sir, you know, you keep wanting to salute us. Are you in the military? And he said, yes, I'm in the military. And I said, well, you know, we should be thanking you for your service. 
And he said, oh, you know, that's awesome. And then he tried to salute me from a seated position. And, and I said, hey, man, you know, I appreciate your service. Can you tell me your name? And he finally told me his name. And so I remember just going, all right, checkbox, right? I'm good. Um, I got his name. Now I got to get what city we're in. So I'm working on that. What I don't see is that behind me, the bystander, he was still pretty hot-blooded from the way he interacted with the security guards. And so while he was nice to me, when he walked behind me, what he did is turned around and he started re-arguing and re-engaging um, with the security guards. And they, they kind of fell for it. They also re-engaged and they kind of picked up the argument where they left off right before we arrived. So while I'm dealing with my patient, trying to get alert and oriented questions, I hear the security guards behind me arguing with someone behind me. I didn't realize it was, it was the bystander I had dealt with. I just heard them kind of arguing. And I figured, you know, somebody was trying to get in on our protective bubble. So I ignored it and I just kept going with my patient care. Um, again, you know, all of this I, I learned <laughs> months and months later, almost a year after the event, uh, the bystander, then he engaged with my captain. Uh, you know, my captain has an iPad. I don't know if you guys have that, but our captain has an iPad and every medical information we can get, he puts in the iPad. And then when the ambulance arrives, he can transfer it to their iPad. And now everything we've done is recorded onto them. And then it goes to the hospital. Do you guys have that ability? Yeah, no, we do. As, as of about two weeks ago, actually. Oh, awesome. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so you're five years ahead of us. It's pretty slick, right? So my captain is standing behind me, um, and, and I'm every time I get a piece of information, I just kind of relay it to my captain, and he's recording it. So my captain is trying to look at the iPad, and he's trying to take care of the information that's necessary. But the bystander, you know, Stabby now kind of gets in his face and says, you know, I was trying to help you guys and you're not being very nice or respectful. And my captain uh, just wasn't in the mood. You know, he wasn't in a good mood. We're, we're all tired. We've been running calls all day. And uh, my captain just goes, look, man, I, I heard my guys ask you to leave. I heard the trolley guys ask you to leave. Now I'm asking you to leave. Like we've, we've got this, you know, he's like, I'm putting all the information in this iPad. We're taking care of this guy. Like we got this. We don't need your help anymore. And the bystander got pissed and he starts, putting his finger in my captain's chest and goes, you know, I'm not going anywhere and, you know, you can't do anything about it. And my captain puts his hand on this guy's chest and he says, hey, you know, give us space. And he pushes the guy back and the guy trips over a park bench. Um, what would seem very harmless, you know, you, you push a guy and he trips over a park bench. The, the reaction was, was 10 times more than we expected. Because, again, we'd only been on scene for about a minute, a minute and a half, maybe like 90 seconds, not realizing that this guy has been fighting and arguing and, and you know, almost getting into a fistfight with the security guards before we arrived for 20 minutes. And so what seemed like 90 seconds and a fairly harmless event, my captain pushes this guy over. Well, this guy, this bystander, man, I mean, that was the trigger that kind of set him off. That was the culmination of... 20 minutes of, of arguing and anger. So he gets up off the ground and just starts swinging. And he actually goes after the security guards. So, so, so just 
the confusion from our side, right, is my captain goes, hey, man, I push you over. You got, jump up and punch a security guard? Like, what the hell is going on? And and so the security guards, you know, immediately they they are ready because they have been dealing with this guy for 20 minutes. So everybody's moving at a faster pace than us, right? My team, my four firefighters are just kind of stuck flat-footed, just going, what is happening? As just this melee breaks out. This this bystander, he happened to be uh, six foot five, two hundred and forty pounds, uh, wiry, strong. Um, again, as I as I learned a year later, uh, he was an ex felon. So this guy has been in prison. Uh, he is fit and he is sober and he is pissed. So he. he takes on these security guards, there's five of them, and he starts beating the crap out of a couple of them pretty bad. I mean, like hitting them, you know, full swings right to the face. I mean, he's just tagging these guys. Um, and they crowd him, and they they tackle him, but they end up spilling over a, a railing that kind of separates the trolley riders from pedestrians on the sidewalk. So the city had put this railing right down the middle of the sidewalk, to, to make, you know, transitioning to and from the trolley easier. And then pedestrians, you know, people on skateboards could could go by and, and they wouldn't be running into each other. So this sidewalk is cut in half. And, and so this fight spills over this railing and it separates almost all of us um, of the nine, right? Five security guards and four firefighters, eight of us are on one side of the railing. As, as the bystander goes over the railing, he gets up onto his feet well, there's just one poor security guard who's standing on the other side of the railing. <laughs> so this bystander immediately grabs that one poor security guard, and now it's just one-on-one, -on -one, and he is just pounding him in the face, like harder than I've ever seen anybody get hit in the face. And, and, you know, I've now turned my attention from my patient. I'm watching this fight break out, and my first thought is, oh, man, I need to save the security guard. The security guard's in real trouble. So I jump over the railing easily. It was only three feet high. You know? it, was, it was very easy to scale. I jumped it in one swift, easy jump. And as he's hauling back to punch this guy, I actually trap his arm. I get in between both of these men and I use my hands. I put them on their chest and I break them apart and I push them away. And I'm screaming, hey, stop fighting. You know, what is going on? Keep in mind, I didn't know for 20 minutes this has been building. Uh, I didn't know that my captain had pushed this guy down. You know, I didn't know any of these things. All I know is I'm dealing with my drunk patient. I hear a fight. I turn around, and this this bystander is beating the crowd of security guards. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, this fight has come from nowhere. I'm thinking, you know, something has happened in the past two seconds that I'm unaware of. So as I split these men up, I actually turn my attention to the security guard. And I go, dude, are you okay? And he, you know, his eyes were kind of swimming and he looked dazed, but he's still on his feet and uh, he's not bleeding. And he says, no, man, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I'll be all right. And I said, okay. I said, stand by. Like, I will take care of you medically in one second, but let me talk to this bystander and find out what I can do to dissipate the problem. Again, as, as only the video shows, in that couple of seconds where I split these guys up, the mistake I made is I gave this guy a chance to regroup, 
and rearm. And so as I push them apart, he reaches into his back pocket and he pulls out a, a knife. Um, again, not realizing he's a felon, this guy has learned how to knife fight in prison. And so he keeps the blade behind him. He keeps it you know, out, but he's hidden. Um, but he's ready now to go to work with the knife. I, I turn my attention now, because I've jumped over the railing, I'm the only one along with that security guard, I'm the only one on the other side of that railing. My entire team is behind me, um, and I am now squared off one-on-one, face-to-face with this bystander. Um, it takes me you know, half a second to realize it's the guy that gave me a turnover just 10 seconds ago. And I'm like, oh, hey, buddy, like, it's me again. Like, what happened? What's going on? You know, you and I had a cool rapport. You gave me a turnover for 30 seconds. Like, why are you so upset? Now, I didn't have time to say all that, but that's kind of where I'm at in my head, just going, oh, wow, this guy again. Like, hey, what's up? And I said, easy, buddy. You know, what's going on? Talk to me. And he's got a look in his eye I've never seen before. He, (laughs) I mean, he's a predator, and I am definitely the prey. Um, And he just looked right through me. And I remember him saying, I got you now. Uh, motherfucker. I don't know if we can cuss on your show, but you know, that's what he said. I got you now, motherfucker. And I remember just going, well, that's not good, right? Like, that's not good. I don't see the knife, but I do see his hand behind him. And I remember just thinking, what is in his hand? You know, what is that? Why is he keeping his body like that? And, And again, you know, my brain cannot process fast enough. So I'm just... Is that wallet? Is that an ID? Did he pull out a knife? Is that a gun? Like, what is happening? And so I got my hands up in a defensive position, and I'm just going, hey, man, talk to me. Like, why are you so pissed off? And he says, I got you now. And I remember, well, that's not good. And so I try to back up. And I'm, I'm, you know, backpedaling, and I hit that railing, that three-foot railing. And, and I cannot describe the sensation of just suddenly feeling trapped, right? Like, I can't back up anymore. I can't move. I'm stuck. And now I know it's one-on-one and I'm going to, I'm going to take the brunt of this guy's attack. And so I remember just that, that feeling like, like panic, like, Oh God, I've hit a wall. You know, I'm stuck. And so he comes flying at me. He was only maybe five or six feet from me. So he's real close, but he gets right up chest to chest and he starts punching me in the back. And I remember, you know, I just kind of braced for the punch, thinking, you know, I'll take a couple hits, no big deal. But when he punched me in the back, I remember thinking, man, that's such a weird way to punch somebody. I've never been in a fist fight where you try to hit the guy in the back, right? I mean, that was just a weird motion. Uh, I didn't feel the knife. I didn't feel any pain at first. Um, So he stabbed me low, just below my kidney on my left side. And then he pulled the knife out and he stabbed me in the chest just behind my shoulder blade. Um, on the left side, he broke a rib and punctured my lung. And then when he pulled the knife out of my chest, he tried to stab me in the head. As it turned out, the, all the air in my lung went out sideways. Um, it knocked the wind out of me. And so I kind of doubled over because it, you know, it winded me. And as I doubled over, he tried to stab me in the head and he missed. The knife went through my hair. Um, so, he, you know, he was a centimeter from sticking me in the side of my head in my temporal lobe right above my ear. So he, he would have killed me instantly. It would have been a, it would have been a death blow. 
Um, but he missed. He hit me in the head, but he, the knife went through my hair, uh, kind of knocked me over sideways. And my partner, who was taking care of the drunk patient, he saw the guy attacking me. He didn't see the knife, but he just saw the guy punching me. And he said, oh, hell no. I'm not going to let that guy punch my partner. So he jumps over the railing as well. And he football tackles this guy and lands on top of him. Well, the guy still had a knife in his hand, so and his hands were free. So while my partner's laying on top of him trying to pin him to the ground, the guy just reaches around and stabs my partner in the back uh, three times. So the two of us stabbed a total of five times in about two or three seconds, like just lightning fast. Um, it, it took me a, a second. You know, I, I remember the guy hit me and knocked me sideways. My engineer at the time uh, ran up to the railing. He reached over the railing and grabbed me. And to get me out of the way, he, he kind of pushed me as hard as he could to my, to my side. And so as my partner is tackling this guy, I got kind of thrown. You know, my, my engineer is just trying to get me out of danger. And so I, I remember kind of being thrown away from the scene. And as I'm stumbling, you know, to regain my balance, uh, very quickly I can't breathe. I, I remember I couldn't take a full breath of air. And then I started feeling warm, wet liquid, you know, sticking to my shirt. And that's when I was able to figure out pretty quickly, like, okay, that guy didn't punch me. He stabbed me. And, uh, and then the pain started to kick in. Um, and I remember, I remember being very panicked at that. Oh my God. Like he just broke my, he punctured my lung. I knew immediately I had a pneumothorax. Um, and so I, I remember just by the time I realized I'd been stabbed, my, my partner was already stabbed. Um, the trolley guys, you know, jumped into high gear and they tackled the guy. My, my captain and my engineer jumped on top and tackled the guy. So there was this huge dog pile. And my partner, Alex, rolled off the pile um, in the melee. The security guards had pepper sprayed the, the bystander and they accidentally like, pepper sprayed my partner. So my partner's blind. Uh, he's bleeding profusely out of his back. And there's no one to help us because everyone that could help us is is securing the patient. You know, they're all or they're securing the bystander. They're jumping on top of him. So that that time being at the stop, being at the trolley stop, and then he and I are, are just kind of sitting on the sidelines waiting for help to arrive. Um, I mean, that's probably the scariest few minutes of my life, you know, waiting for help to arrive and not sure if I'm going to live or die, not sure if my partner's going to live or die. Um, we didn't bring any equipment for trauma, right? We left all the trauma equipment on the rig. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, I, I need to, let's see if I can do this without crying, but uh, I need to fix my partner and, and stop the bleeding and save him. But you know, I also need to help myself. I need to fix, I need to seal the wound in my chest or my pneumothorax will turn into a tension pneumothorax. And this is where I can tell you that this call really messed with my head is, you know, on an airplane, they always say if the oxygen mask drop, put the oxygen on yourself first and then help the person next to you. Because the idea is if you go unconscious, you're not going to help the person next to you. And I had that moment of like, I need to seal my chest wound 
so that I don't get attention pneumo, so that I can help Alex. Uh, but then my, my thought is I don't want to be the guy that saves himself while well, his partner death. <clears throat> right? I, I don't want to be standing upright like, I did it, I saved myself, and there's my partner dead on the ground next to me. And so I remember thinking, I can't do that. I can't be selfish and fix myself. I need to fix Alex. But I didn't have any of the equipment to do it. And and I you know, that's where we were a block away, a full city block away from our rig. And I remember looking at the rig and it it looked so tiny, you know, it looked so far away. And because I couldn't breathe very well, I remember thinking, I can't make it. I won't I, I'm gonna either bleed out or I'm gonna go unconscious before I get to the rig. I can't that's too far away, I won't make it. Um and so that uh, we had to just wait for help to arrive. Man, that is the longest couple minutes I've ever waited in my life, waiting for help and then just hoping that I stayed conscious, hoping Alex didn't bleed to death. Um, man, that was hands down the worst part of the whole thing. Getting stabbed, you know, whatever. But not being able to fix myself, not being able to fix Alex, uh, I'll be honest, I was panicked. I was panicked. I couldn't breathe. I know I'm bleeding. I know my lung space is filling with air. I was panicked. And uh, I kind of feel like the wheels came off the bus and I couldn't think straight and I couldn't make good decisions. And uh, so that that really was the worst part of that whole thing. So you get <clears throat> transported to the hospital. What was, uh, were you conscious? Were you with it when you actually got there to the ER and threw out your transport? Yeah, I stayed conscious. Uh, we, we called uh, cover now, which is our code. What's your code for all hell's broken loose? Send everybody. What's your code in Ohio? Just 99. You just code 99 and yes, that's all they need and they'll send everybody. Absolutely. So we, yeah, we said cover now, which is our code. And, uh, Uh, <clears throat> engines and trucks, um, chiefs, I mean, everybody with a 10-mile radius was was on their way. Um, <clears throat> you know, dispatch was, uh, you know, they're trying their best, but they, they were trying to keep up with everything. Um, the ambulance that arrived on scene was supposed to be there for our drunk patient in case we couldn't get him to walk three feet. And so, you know, those poor guys, they pull up what they think is going to be a drunk, you know, standard run the call, and now they're pulling up to a knife fight with, you know, a whole bunch of people injured. And so you could see kind of look on their face. They were shocked. Um, but they kicked it into high gear. They triaged, assumed I was the worst because I couldn't breathe. So they grabbed me, and they threw me in the back, and we took off to the hospital. Um you know, some of the things I don't have time to say, usually when I'm speaking to fire departments across the country, you know, they put me in the back and it's, there's all these engines, the truck showing up and they're saying, you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on. Well, they had called for another ambulance. Um, the closest second ambulance was, had already been dispatched to a, it was like a, a little old lady with knee pain or something. And so they said, hey, dispatch, we're going to 
skip that call. Let's go to this one. We're closer. And dispatch said, no, you know, you're already assigned a call. We'll send somebody else. And I said, well, who's the closest ambulance? And they said, well, that ambulance is, you know, 10 minutes out. And, you know, they're reading the notes on the computer and it's saying, you know, two firefighters stabbed critically. Um, and so the second ambulance said, no, no, screw that. We're jumping this call. Like, put us on this one. So there was debate on, on if we should bring Alex with me, like put two people, two patients in the back of one ambulance and get us to the hospital. And I'm laying there, I'm conscious, and I'm saying, hey, absolutely, let's bring Alex. Well, what I didn't see is that second ambulance came screaming around the corner. So they decided, no, we're good. We'll, we'll give Alex his own ambulance. So they shut the doors and tapped the back of the ambulance, and the ambulance takes off. And I thought they had made the decision to leave Alex to die, right? I mean, they were, they, had, and I was. <laughs> They had to hold me down. I was so pissed. I was trying to climb out of the ambulance and keep the thing on scene so that we could get Alex. So there were uh, four guys in the back. And they're fighting me. And when they finally made me realize, like, no, man, Alex is going to be all right. That, that helped, you know, that calmed me down. Because I was so adamant, you know. I was like, dude, I'm not going to live and let him die on the street. <clears throat> Sorry, doesn't matter how many times I tell the story, it still gets to me. <clears throat> so anyway, they finally got me to calm down and they made me realize that another ambulance had picked up Alex. Now the funny, <laughs> the funny part, just to show you the kind of everybody was panicked. In downtown, we have two major hospitals. They're both amazing facilities. Uh, one is Mercy Hospital and one is UCSD Hospital. Uh, both are high-rises, and they are literally like two blocks apart, and you can see either hospital from the other one. You know, if you, if you, you can see them, they're, they're side by side, and I think it's the weirdest thing that these two giant, amazing hospitals um, are so close together. So the, the, we have rules about, depending on where the call is, depends on what hospital you go to. So UCSD and Mercy, they, they've kind of divided the city into a grid so that they try to share the, the workload, right? And so one of the things you learn early in your, you know, when you're becoming a paramedic is where that grid is and who goes to what hospital. So we were in the grid that was supposed to go to UCSD and I heard my, my buddy in the ambulance, he said, hey, now we're going to Mercy. And so after they call me down, now I'm trying to tell them, hey, you know, we're going to the wrong hospital. I'm trying to <laughs> trying to run the call from the gurney, which is just stupid. And I said, hey, man, you know, that's the wrong hospital. We've got to go to Mercy. Well, my buddy uh, Donald, 
was in the back with me, and he goes, hey, he goes, I don't care about the grid. He goes, my wife works in the ER at Mercy. Now, Donnie, my buddy Donnie, he, uh, he and I went to college together. Uh, we played volleyball together at UCSD, and then it was his idea to become EMT. So we went to EMT school together. Then we were in medic school together. We were in the fire academy together, uh, and we were both at the same firehouse. He's on the heavy rescue that day, and I was on the engine. Um, and so when we called cover now, you know, the heavy rescue rig drove over to the, you know, a couple blocks over to the trolley stop. And so when the ambulance showed up, my buddy Donnie jumped off a rescue, grabs me, throws me on the gurney, and then jumps on the back of the ambulance. Uh, I was in his wedding, you know, I was one of the groomsmen in his wedding, and my dad was the chaplain that married him to his wife. So to say we're close is an understatement, right? Like he's my best friend. And so he said, hey man, we're not going to UCSD, we're going to Mercy, because my wife works in the ER. And I remember thinking, that's a good idea, like I would rather be with your wife in the ER. Now, of course, we're not going to the emergency room, we're going straight to the trauma room, uh, to do emergency surgery, so I would never see his wife. But just to give you an idea of just the panic and what, where the thought process is, you know, it's just <clears throat> he wanted to get me to somebody he trusted. <clears throat> and I remember thinking, yeah, I want to be with a nurse that I know will take good care of me. But of course, none of that happened. But just kind of funny that. That's, that's how we ended up. And so then, of course, the other ambulance grabs Alex, and they follow the grid model. So they went to UCSD. So I got rushed to Mercy, and Alex gets rushed to UCSD. We end up at two different hospitals uh, for the same event, um, which made it really hard for my department, right? Because now they're they're visiting people at different places. Um, but anyway, I got rushed there. Now, when we called cover now, there were ambulances or, you know, fire engines and fire trucks listening to the radio traffic. And they knew that they were too far away to help at the trolley stop. You know, it was just, you know, they were too, too far away. But they were close enough to get to the hospital. So, I mean, nobody's allowed to do this. But they all just jumped to the engines and they just they jumped in their engines and trucks and drove to the hospitals just to help. And uh, it's funny, man. I can I can watch the video of my stabbing, and I can talk. You know, I can testify in court with no tears. But when I start trying to talk about all the people, that came to my rescue, it's hard to not get emotional. So imagine my surprise when we pulled in to the ER 
you know, and the back doors open up, and there's, I don't know, 30, 40 of my people from all over the city waiting. I just was kind of blown away. I was like, whoa, like, wow, I, where did you guys come from? And uh, I felt like a little kid in a soccer game, you know, where they make the parents make the tunnel. Because there was, it was just a sea of blue. As they wheeled me <laughs> from the uh, ambulance into the trauma room. And there, there must have been 50 people, you know, chiefs, captains, firefighters, EMTs, and medics from the ambulances that I knew. Uh, they're all in the trauma room. And, uh, you know, the trauma team's, what, eight to ten people. And uh, that trauma room was packed, and they were having a hard time working. I think, to their credit, they didn't try to kick anybody out because that wouldn't have worked. So they just kind of worked around everybody. Um, so I, I remember just being surrounded. And, of course, other engines and trucks had gone to UCSD, and Alex was met with the same you know, crowd of people, uh, and the chiefs, you know, I think the chiefs, the battalion chiefs and division chiefs, they saw all these engines and trucks from way out of the district, and to their credit, you know, I don't think they said anything, um, <laughs> again, probably wouldn't have worked, uh, but it was amazing the response that my department had, you know, for me and Alex, and I am forever grateful. Uh, so they they put me on the trauma table, and the doc realized I actually had a hemoneumothorax. So I had air and blood trapped in my chest, and he decided the best way to um, clear that out was to do a chest tube. Uh, I had seen, I've seen people get chest tubes. I'm sure you have too. It looks unbelievably painful. And so I said, Doc, you know, you got to do me a favor. You're going to knock me out before you do this procedure. And he said, no, I can't do that. But I'm just going to have four of your guys hold you down. And uh, I just, I remember at the time, even though I was hurting, I thought, this can't be the way we're supposed to do this procedure. Like, this can't be right. Just hold me down and then do the whole thing while I'm awake. Uh, but sure enough, man, just, you know, sliced into my ribs stuck his finger in to break the lining, you know, of the plural space. And then he took a garden hose from Home Depot. I swear to God, man, it was the largest tube I've ever seen in my life. And he shoved it into my chest. Um, I mean, I wouldn't, wouldn't wish that on anyone. It was so painful and so invasive. And just, um, you know, that tube just scrapes along the top of your lung, your actual lung. That tube is just rubbing across the top of your lung you know, trying to find that pocket. And so sure enough, you know, he, he shoved it in a good, I feel like five or six times, he just kept feeding the tube in. Uh, and I'm screaming bloody murder. And then he found the pocket, and uh, all of a sudden air and blood came flying out of the tube. And when it did, I was able to take a full breath, and I just, you know, remember going, <gasps> I, I got a full lung of air. And, and I remember just feeling very, relaxed, like, okay, I'm going to be okay. Um, and for the first time I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make it. I'm going to survive this. Like I'm good. Uh, and then after that, they pumped me full of meds and I 
woke up later in the uh, recovery room. So that's my story. <laughs> How long did you end up being in the hospital? Uh, I was in the hospital for three days. Alex was in the hospital for two days. Um, I, I woke up in the trauma room or in the recovery room. Uh, my wife was sitting at my side holding my hand and I had tubes coming out of every part of my body. Uh, they set me up with a Percocet drip. So I, I had this little button and I could push it, it would glow green. And then I would press it and the light would turn off and I'd get Percocet and it would make me comfortable. And then for the first day or so, every time I press it, it would kind of make me super sleepy. Um, but, you know, I would, I, I had visitors the whole time. Um, you know, and what's funny is, you know, people would come into my room and they would be at the foot of my bed and I would say hi to everybody and I would, you know, trying to tell them what happened and and then the pain would get too much and I would press that button and I would I would fall asleep and then when I would wake up, there'd be a whole new group of people in my room and it would start all over and I would tell them the story and talk to them and visit with them and then the pain would get too much. I'd press the button, fall asleep, wake up, somebody else was in the room. Uh, so that went on for a, a day or two. Um, my family, my dad, my mom, my sister, they finally, you know, made it into town. Um, and so pretty soon the hospital room was, was just my closest family, which was nice. Um, and, and I have to give a shout out to San Diego PD. I didn't know this at the time, but when we rushed to the hospital in the ambulance, PD blocked for them. So they uh, they cleared the streets to help the ambulance get to the hospital faster, and then not because you know they were worried about the assailant getting me again because you know PD arrested the guy immediately, put him in handcuffs, took him to jail, but um, PD put a, a an officer outside my room for three days, and they did rotations guarding my room. Um, again, you know, you know, I've learned I can't pay that back. I can't pay back my gratitude for them doing that. All I can do is pay it forward. Uh, so I'm telling you, man, San Diego PD, I, I try to take such good care of them because uh, they absolutely, I, I owe them. You know, they did a great job. Uh, it made my family feel really safe and secure. Um, and I became pretty good friends with a lot of the guys that guarded my room. They'd come in and visit and talk with me. Um, so I, I got to be good friends with some of them. Uh, so yeah, I spent three days in the, in the hospital. They, they checked my lung and when they realized that my lung was holding air, um, they pulled the tube out and stitched me up and then sent me home. So I gave a press conference after I was done, and Alex, he got released before me, so he came over to my hospital, and the two of us gave a press conference together. Uh, we were heroes, you know. The, there were probably 10 to 15 different news channels, and they were asking us questions about, you know, just hero stuff, which I thought was really funny, because um, all I felt like is I just lost a knife fight. You know, I didn't feel like a hero. Um, but we were we were heroes and and we were sent home, you know, kind of a a hero's farewell. Climbed in my car and my family drove me home and 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 then my mom and dad stayed and helped 
my wife Lisa for probably a week or so. Um, you know, I was in a lot of pain, and I had a huge prescription for Percocet and every other kind of fun drug. Um, when the pain got to be too much, I would take the the pain meds, and that would put me to sleep. And the hospital said, you know, in about two three weeks, the stitches will come out, and as long as your lungs hold air, as far as we're concerned, you're good. You know, you'll be able to go back to work. And my thought was perfect, right? The stitches come out in a couple of weeks go back to work. I'm going to have such a great story to tell. This is going to be awesome. And that's kind of where my thought process is. I, I didn't realize at the time that the Percocet was, was helping kind of suppress my subconscious. So I remember 10 days was the magic mark where I was starting to get constipated and I was starting to get that opiate, you know, where I wanted to take the opiates, even though there wasn't that much pain. And I remember thinking, man, these things are so addictive. I don't want to be a statistic where I get hooked on this stuff and then I lose my job later because I'm addicted to opiate. And so I remember after 10 days, I thought, okay, I'm going to tough this out. Uh, I've got some ibuprofen I can take, Advil, whatever. I'm going to take some over-the-counter stuff. I'm going to quit taking these opiates. So by the time the stitches come out, uh, I won't have this opiate addiction and I can go right back to work. And that's kind of my thought process. What I didn't realize is the opiates were suppressing my subconscious, allowing me to sleep. So the very first night, about 10 days into recovery, I didn't take opiates that day, and I went to sleep, and I had a nightmare. And as you heard in my talk, man, these nightmares are like nothing I've ever experienced in my life. They were the most vivid, terrifying, realistic things I've ever experienced. Um, I dreamt that first night that I was back at the trolley stop and I, I was going to get into another knife fight with Stabby. Um, but I could see him crystal clear. I could see him as clear as I can see you. I could smell the urine on the street. And, you know, I, I my dream started where I'm back up against the railing. My hands are up. I'm trying to talk this guy down. But the trolley goes by behind me. And the wind from the trolley kind of rocks me off balance. I mean, it's that level of detail. And he comes at me and he stabs me in the back. But this time I don't, I, you know, I know he's going to get me in the back and then in the chest. So I, I trap his arm and the knife is in my body. I can feel the knife in me, but I am just filled with rage. And I take this guy by his ear and I, I just trip him and I slam him down onto the ground and I climb on top of him, and I start slamming his head into the pavement. I don't want to kill him, but I just want to take the fight out of him, and it works. He doesn't die. He doesn't go unconscious, but it, it kind of stuns him, and he goes limp, and his, his hand lets go of the knife. The knife's still on my back, but he, he kind of laying on his back with his arms out, and he's dazed. And I remember having this evil, like, laugh and just thinking, you know, it's my turn now to hurt you. I'm going to hurt you as bad as you hurt me. And I, I'm holding this guy by the ears. I'm sitting on top of his chest, and I think, well, how can I hurt him where it'll really be painful? And I think, you know, the best way to do that is I'm going to bite off his face. And so while I'm holding his ears, I, I just lean over, and I bite into his face, and I sink my teeth into his eye socket, and I bite so deep and so hard into his orbit that my, the bottom of my teeth catch on the underside of his skull. And so I'm just taking a giant chunk out of his forehead. 
And I remember thinking in my sleep, man, I'm not strong enough to bite through skull. And so I, I again, consciously make a decision to, to back off just a little bit until I get just his eyebrow. And so I feel just the flesh of his eyebrow in my mouth and eyebrow tickles my tongue. And I know, know I've got the right spot. And so as soon as I got it, I bite through flesh and blood squirts into my mouth and I taste it, you know, I taste the iron and I grab his face and I, I pull my face back and I just try to rip off a section of his face. And there's a moment where it doesn't quite tear. And so I, I, I want to put more force into his face so that I can rip off his eyebrow. And so I take my thumbs and I shove them into his eye sockets and his eyeballs rupture under my thumbs and they pool in my hands and I just sink my thumbs into the back of his skull and that's enough force where I can now tear off flesh and as I tear off flesh arterial spray hits my shirt and it's warm and it's wet and of course he is screaming bloody murder and I'm screaming right back at him and as I'm screaming at him I wake up from my nightmare I sit straight up in bed and I am screaming at the top of my lungs and my hands are gripped like I'm ripping out of his eyeballs. And so I sit straight up in bed, just screaming at the top of my lungs. And I can still taste blood in my mouth. And my shirt is warm and it's wet. It's not from the arterial spray, it's just from sweat. But I realized that the that sensation I was feeling in my dream was a, a real sensation. It was really, you know, warm and wet on my shirt. And I, I am soaked. I mean, I'm just soaked in sweat. My shirt is almost see-through. I'm so sweaty. And I turn around and I look at my bed and my bed is soaked in sweat. And my poor wife is, you know, she's awake, but she's just laying on her side, like not making eye contact with me, like pretending to be asleep. And and I just, I am amped. I am amped from this dream. And I can feel my blood pressure in my ears. And I'm thinking my heart rate's about 150. And my eyes are dilated and I'm tasting blood in my mouth, and I feel and taste like I just murdered this guy. And so I am wide awake. And so it's probably 2 in the morning. I go downstairs. I sit in the dark, you know, soaking wet. I get a cup of water, and I just try to, I just try to bring my heart rate down. I just try to kind of calm myself down. Uh, it takes me a while to calm, but then I'm still just wide awake, right? And so... I watch the sun come up and, you know, I turn on the TV and watch the news and, and basically sit in front of TV the whole time. Just, and I, and I remember that first night thinking, well, you know, that makes sense. Like a gnarly event, gnarly nightmare. I should have been expecting that. My bad. Okay. That was gnarly. Wow. That was intense. Um, glad that's over. And then I, and I'm exhausted, tired. So I think, okay, well this next night, I'm going to be so tired, I'm going to sleep just fine. And so I, the second night, you know, I'm awake for the whole day. The second night, I go to sleep, and I have the exact same nightmare. I gouge this guy's eyes out, I rip his face off, I cover it in blood, and I wake up screaming. And that second night, I'm like, oh, boy, this is not good. Third night, fourth night, fifth night, sixth night, it, it goes on for a couple weeks. Uh, at some point I realized like I'm in real trouble here because I'm supposed to be coming back to work. You know, the stitches are supposed to come out soon 
And the docs are like, hey, when the stitches come out, you're going back to work. You know, physically, you're going to be fine. And I'm thinking, uh-oh, like, I'm in real trouble. These stitches are supposed to come out in a couple of days, and I am not fine. You know, I'm, I'm really worried. Like, I'm, I'm angry, and I'm pissed. And I, I realize when I go out in public, I don't like being out in public. I, I don't, you know, anybody looks at me the wrong way. I think maybe it's a fight. And so my blood pressure goes up, my pulse goes up. Um, you know, I'm easily triggered. I'm hypervigilant. I'm jumpy. You know, just everything is kind of coming unraveled. Yikes. How are we doing so far? <laughs> Great. Okay. Yeah, yeah you're doing fine. okay? All right. Yeah, I'm good. I just feel bad, man. You're just sitting there. I'm, um, hey, I'm just letting you go. I mean, my <laughs> audience doesn't give a shit about me. But I'm hoping they give a shit about you. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm three weeks in and I'm really worried and I'm realizing I'm in real trouble. Uh, at that point, one of the coolest things happened, one of the most surreal things. Um, I didn't know it when my event went down. One of the security guards was wearing a body camera, and in the melee during the fight, when I jumped over the railing and then the guy came at me and stabbed me. It turns out the security guard wearing the body camera was standing right behind me, like like one foot behind me. And he managed to capture my attempted murder on video. And so, of course, that video immediately became evidence and it went to court. Well, we're talking now three or four weeks after my event, the court is is starting to look at evidence and, you know, the DA and the prosecutors, the defense attorneys are all starting to build a case. Well, they turned all the evidence over to the judge and said, these are all the evidence we'd like to submit. And the media said, hey, judge, we would like that evidence to show people, you know, are you okay with that? And the judge said, yeah, I don't think it'll affect uh, any jurors. You know, I, I don't think it'll be that big a deal. So he turned the videotapes over to the media, and the media showed my stabbing on TV. Now, I didn't know that there was a guy videotaping. I didn't know the guy stood right behind me. So I happened to be at home watching TV uh, with my wife, and they interrupt the broadcast. They want to bring in a TV. You know, the news wants to tell a story. And they said, you know, we have video evidence of a firefighter getting stabbed, almost murdered. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, another firefighter got stabbed? Like, that's crazy. And it was caught on tape. How wild. And sure enough, they show the video of me uh, at the trolley stop getting stabbed. Now, because the event happened so fast, they actually had to slow the video way down so that it's only in slow motion you can see the knife go into my body. And, and so I'm watching this event on TV. And, and what the other thing that, you know, you you know, but when you go through a really gnarly, scarier event, your brain replays it in slow motion anyway. So for the last two, three weeks, believe me, when I was awake, all I was thinking about is that fight. And I was replaying it in my head in slow motion over and over and over again, just thinking, you know, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? You know, why did why did I let that guy get the better of me? And you know, why didn't I go left? Why didn't I go right? Why didn't I kick that guy? Like, why didn't I move? And, and sure enough, they show on tape in slow motion at almost the same speed I was playing it in my head. 
So it's the most surreal thing because it's like they took it right out of my brain and put it on TV. And so I'm watching my attempted murder on television. It was awesome. It was awesome. But the other cool thing, the, the side effect of that is my entire department also saw the video and they realized how close I came to death, right? I mean, you can see the knife go through. Now, I had dozens of calls, hundreds of calls and texts and emails and um, people making sure I'm doing okay. When that video got released, now people are driving to my house and they're looking me in the eye and they're going, dude, are you okay? And I realized after like the second or third visit, you know, that they're not asking if I'm physically okay. I realize now they're asking if I'm mentally okay. And I remember thinking, no, you know what? I'm not okay mentally. And I remember thinking, this is great. I've got a get out of jail free card. I can ask for mental health help and no one will make fun of me. No one will think less of me. And I think this is where the stigma on the West Coast is the same as, as the stigma where you're at. You know, we don't talk about mental health. Uh, if you have a mental health issue, you are labeled immediately. Uh, people are afraid to work with you. You know, they start talking bad about you. Uh, you start hearing things like, well, you know, this job's not for everybody, and maybe he picked the wrong career, right? I mean, come on, Jim, I know you've heard some. What, what have I, you heard? There's, well, I, I, just, I just love that. In order for you to get a pass, you had to get not only stabbed, but you had to have video evidence of that stabbing. Yes, yes. But, and, and Jim, you've had the opportunity, you know, the, the listeners will not get to see the tape. I mean, honestly, be honest, if I stood on stage and went, guys, I got stabbed and it really made me feel bad, I, I think you'd be like, okay, yeah, that sucks. But you get to see the video, it is so much more intense. The way that you described described everything, I, now I've seen the video, but I mean, you're there's no bullshit in what you're saying, because you I remember you pause it and you and you look into the guy's eyes, and the level of insanity, of just I've I've never seen anybody that furious before. I mean, it and 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 seeing how everything went down, and then you show it in regular speed. And it is like it's a it's a snap. I mean, it's Lightning. over so quick. Nobody could have done anything. I mean, there's just you had there's nothing that you could have done differently. And and I imagine. Right. I mean, what, what was what else was it like when you saw that video? I mean, <clears throat> did that kind of reassure you that there's nothing you could have done differently? Like it, it is what it is. Like when you got in that so, situation. No, unfortunately, because it was in slow motion. I didn't see the real speed video for almost a year. And, and so for a long time, I was still second guessing myself. Why didn't I go left? Why didn't I go right? Uh, it wasn't until the trial. I got stabbed in June. The trial was in February. So what is that? Eight, nine months later. Uh, I was in court and they showed that same clip, but in real speed. And when they showed it in real speed, I, I started crying because that was such a weight lifted off my shoulder. And it was after I saw it in real speed, much later, I thought, oh, oh, yeah, okay, no wonder I didn't do anything. Because it was so quick. It was so quick. And so I did give myself a pass after I saw it in real speed. But that wasn't until, like, February or March of the following year. Um, so, yeah. But, but seeing it in slow motion and then having people drive to my house, 
I remember thinking, okay, I got to pass. Like I can ask for help. No one will make fun of me. Now, the funny thing is, is I've never had to ask for help, never thought I'd need it, never cared to know any resources about it. And now here I am at home, uh, you know, on injury leave, realizing I need mental health help. I didn't know where to start. So I figured, well, this is a workers' comp injury. I'm going to call the workers' comp department at my city. I did. I said, I want mental health help. They said, no problem. And they gave me a list of four names and four phone numbers. There was no other description but that. Uh, the first number I called, the guy was uh, had been retired for two years and wasn't taking any new clients. It should have been a red flag for me, but it wasn't. I was like, all right, well, first number didn't work. I'll call the second number. Uh, call the second number, agree to meet. The, the psychologist says, yeah, I'll meet you uh, in two days. And I said, yeah, okay, perfect. I'm not going to sleep for two days. I haven't slept for almost four weeks, but as long as I know help's on the way, I'm good. Um, and I was actually very excited to meet my very first psychologist. So I go down and I meet the workers' comp psychologist. The, it was a gentleman. He, uh, he said, look, I'm excited to work with you. I've never worked with a firefighter before. He goes, I work with car accident victims. I said, this is great. I've never worked with a therapist before. I also work with car accident victims. For me, I'm just trying to find common ground, and, and I'm so desperate for help. But again, he's telling me, I don't specialize in firefighters, but that's oblivious to me. I'm like, okay, whatever, that's all right. And so he said, well, what's, what's the problem? And I said, well, let me show you. And by this point, I've got the video on my phone. I'm showing everybody that wants to see it. So I show him the video in slow motion of me getting stabbed, and he says, my God, that guy tried to kill you. He said, so what's the problem? And I said, well, I'm having nightmares where I chew this guy's face off and rip his eyes out of his sockets, and I wake up screaming, tasting blood in my mouth. And Jim, you should have seen the look on his face, man. He was, he didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to do. He was just, you know, he, he was a deer in the headlights look on his face. And he said, well, Ben, if you're having trouble sleeping, the best thing to do is lay off the caffeine. And I... <laughs> How much caffeine were you drinking, Ben? I mean, shit. Exactly. And I just... I remember just going, wait, you just watched the video of me almost get murdered, and that's your advice, is lay off the caffeine? And I, I remember just kind of staring dumbfounded at him, like you went to school for this? Like, you get paid to do this? Like, this is your profession? And I'm going, man, this, this guy doesn't get it at all. Um, and I remember feeling pretty depressed, and I left his office um, just kind of, you know, shaking my head like, oh, God, I'm in trouble. But I just thought, you know what, I, I just, I'll, I'll teach this guy how it works, and I'll, I'll get him to help me. I'm going to make this guy help me. So I would go back to his office, and, and he wanted to do one a week. I wanted to do, like, every day, right, because I just wanted to get past this. I really did just want to go back to work. I wanted to, I wanted to be healthy. And so we agreed to, like, every other day. And so for weeks, I'm going to this guy every other day, but I realized I'm spending most of the time in his office explaining a Kelly schedule because, you know, he said, well, if you're having trouble sleeping, you know, um, lay off the caffeine, and then, and then, you know, when you go home at night – you know, just do this, this, and this, you know. And I said, no, no, I, I have to stay at work for 24 hours. And, and he was dumbfounded. He's like, you work 24 hours at a time? And I'm like, good God, man. Like, 
yes, of course. And I said, and I'm still eligible to work overtime, and sometimes we get forced to work overtime, so I could work 72 hours straight. And he's like, well, that's not healthy. That's it, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Okay, thanks. And and the kicker for me is, you know, a couple weeks in, I'm doing all this explaining. I'm explaining the difference between a fire engine and a fire truck, and I'm trying to help him understand, you know, what kind of calls we run on, because... You know, some calls are very stressful. Some are benign. And I was, t- I was telling him, I, I, my fear was if he sends me back to work too early, I'm too aggressive, I'm too angry, and I'm afraid that if he sends me back to work too early, we're going to run a call at the trolley stop. Some drunk guy is going to get in my face, and I'm going to kill him. Right? I'm not going to try to talk him down. I'm not going to be nice. I'm just going to start hitting him until the guy stops moving, you know, and I'm going to attack and I might hit first you know I just don't even want to wait to see if there's a knife involved hell I'll pull out a knife I'll stab first I've learned the value of that so right I'm thinking if you send me back to work too early I'm going to straight murder somebody and then I'm going to lose my job I'm going to lose my freedom everything I've worked for in the past 10 years is going to and the kicker for me the one that just ended it he said well if you're feeling stressed at work just don't go on any calls. That's common sense. I mean, really, you don't do that in San Diego. Laugh. Like, hey, I'm, I'm, you guys, you can handle this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this one off. That you don't do that. You don't have that opportunity. Exactly. I, uh, now, from a psychologist standpoint, you know, it makes sense if you go, hey, this thing I do stresses me out. I actually think he's ahead of his time. <laughs> Yeah, we all need to start working on that. Yeah, the option to go on a call or not should be given back to the fire department. Let us pick. I'm I'm good. You guys go to the bed bug house. (laughs) Or dispatch says, hey, uh, no one's coming. They say that call sounds stressful. Like, can you imagine that? That would be funny. That would be funny. (coughs) Yeah, yeah. So I I was pretty, I was pretty shocked, um, pretty disappointed. And I remember leaving his office that day after he said that, and I thought, I'm in so much trouble because I have a gun against the grain. I've tried to get help. I, I've seen a psychologist, which in our, our world, man, that is like the that is a that is a huge no-no. You know, you handle your shit, you take care of yourself, you get mentally tough. And so here I am going against our stigma. I'm I'm actually seeing professional help and I'm getting worse. I'm not getting better, I'm getting worse. Uh, and I just, I remember sitting at home just thinking, you know, this, I'm, I'm getting worse instead of better. I haven't slept now in, in weeks. And I remember I was sitting in the dark at my house at like two in the morning. And for the first time in my life, I understood suicide. And I, I'm not saying I was going to kill myself, but I suddenly understood why people do it. And I have never understood it. I've never been able to put myself in their shoes, right? Like we run on these people all the time who are suicidal and I've just never understood it because I can always see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, today's Wednesday and and you're stuck at work and COVID-19 is keeping your family indoors, but you know it's going to end. We're going to get back to normal. You're going to get to go to Disneyland. You know, like you're going to get to go camping. Like there's something to look forward to. So no matter how bad it gets right now, it will improve. And so you just ride the roller coaster, right? 
But here I am a month without sleep. I, I'm trying to get professional help. I'm not getting it. I'm getting worse. And I remember for the first time in my life, I said, this is why people kill themselves. Because I've lost hope. I, I can't see my way out of this. And I remember thinking, if I don't figure this out, I, I own a gun. And I, I guarantee I'll sleep then. Right? Then sleep is guaranteed. And just that thought creeping into my head scared the shit out of me because I remember thinking, whoa, like how did I get here? And worse, how did I get here so fast? Because I consider myself mentally tough as I think most first responders do, man. We are tough as nails. And it took me a month to get to that point, like only a month, only four weeks without sleep, and I'm ready to swallow a bullet. Like that just doesn't – it's terrifying how fast – that that happens. Do you know what I mean? And so I'm sitting in the dark and I, I'm contemplating suicide and I'm going, this is ridiculous. You know, there has to be a fix for this. And it was sitting in the dark at two in the morning that peer support kind of popped into my head. Um, I, I'm here to tell you if your fire department or ambulance service doesn't have peer support team, I don't know what you're waiting for uh, because it absolutely makes all the difference in the world. I, I thought of a buddy of mine who was on the fire department. He came on after me. He, he was on probation. I was already off probation. But I worked a lot of overtime, and I would bounce to different firehouses working overtime. And I ran into this guy a lot, and he was a really squared away guy. Uh, his name was James Shadone, and he was actually a retired CHP officer, California Highway Patrol. He was a cop. And he had gotten into a gunfight and killed a guy, and it ended his career. Now, when he was on probation, he'd bounce around through the different firehouses. I'd work with him. The crews would always figure out who he was. And at the morning meeting, they'd sit him down and they'd go, okay, man, you got to start the day off. you got to tell us how you killed the guy. And he was always very candid about it. He's open, and he described, uh, you know, he, he and his partner chased a guy through an open-air market, and this guy had a 45 handgun, and he was shooting at them through this open-air market, and civilians are diving over orange stands. You know, they're all diving out of the way trying to, you know, not get shot, and he chases this guy down, and his partner and him, you know, split up and try to pincher the guy, um, and James ends up cornering this guy, and James had a shotgun, and he had the guy dead to rights. And he said, look, man, do not raise your gun. Drop your gun. If you raise that gun, I'll kill you. And this this guy said, hey, screw you, cop. And he lifted the gun and pointed it at, at James. And James put him down. He killed him with a shotgun. Um, and he he was always very candid about it. He would share the story with us. And, of course, everybody loved it. And they'd ask lots of details. And one time as I'm sitting there with him, listening to the story for like the fourth or fifth time, he went into details about what happened after the event. He said after he got in the shooting, CHP, you know, brought him back to the headquarters. They put him in an office. They gave him some water. They said, hey, sit tight. A police psychologist is going to come talk to you. And Shooter said, okay, sounds good. Um, sure enough, this guy walked in the room. Uh, these two men had never met. And James, you know, the, meets this psychologist. And the psychologist said, look, You've been in a shooting, you killed a guy. He goes, let me outline the next six months of your life. And, and Shooter's like, okay. And he said, look, you're, 
you got a girlfriend? And Shooter goes, yeah. And he goes, you've been dating her in less than two years? And Shooter said, yeah, about you know, 18 months. And the psychologist said, well, you're going to break up with her. And Shooter was like, what the hell? Oh, James, we nicknamed him Shooter, uh, which is a really cool nickname. Uh, so Shooter just goes, hey, man, I, you know, I, I just met you, and you're telling me I'm going to break up with my girlfriend. Like, screw you. And he said, yeah. He said, and by the way, every time a car backfires, you're going to hit the deck. And everybody you meet that's a stranger, you're going to be convinced is related to the guy you killed. You're going to be super hypervigilant. You're going to be jumpy. You're going to have nightmares. Like, all these things are going to happen to you. And Schroeder didn't believe him. Uh, but there he was at the breakfast table sharing with us. He said, like clockwork, everything the guy said came true. And it was this horrible roller coaster he didn't want to be on, and he hated every minute of it. Uh, and he ended up going to this psychologist and working with the guy for months and getting better, uh, but realized after therapy, he said, you know, I don't think I want to pick up a gun and go back to work. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to go be a firefighter. And so he did. And so as I'm sitting in the dark, you know, hypervigilant, jumpy, nightmares, I, I remember thinking, you know what? Shooter will understand what I'm going through, and he can help me. And so I went looking for him, and I found him, and I said, buddy, you got to help me. you got to you got to outline the next six months of my life like that guy did for you. You know, you got to tell me how to get through this because I'm, I am absolutely struggling. And to his credit, you know, he said, look, man, I can't help you with that. This is a journey you're on on your own. He said, but why don't you go see the police psychologist that I saw? And I, I remember just kind of a sense of relief, like, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, if he helped you, maybe he can help me. And so Shooter reached into his wallet, and he kept this old, tattered business card, and he handed it to me. And I called the police psychologist and asked for help. And the guy was amazing. So first I got to tell you that San Diego PD has a contract with a third-party vendor. It's a company called Focus. And this company, Focus, has something like 10 or 12 therapists. You know, they're, they're MFTs, marriage and family therapists. They're licensed clinical social workers, they're PhDs, they're PsyDs, they're all various clinicians and training, but they all specialize working with first responders, with working with cops. And so I called these guys, and I talked to a guy named Dr. Mark Foreman, and, and he answered the phone, and I said, look, I need your help, but there's a problem. I'm with the fire department. We don't have a contract with you. And, and so, you know, my insurance won't pay for you, Workers' comp won't pay for you. And because I'm on injury leave, I don't have a lot of money. I probably can't afford you. I said, but if you'll help me and just keep track of all the hours that you use, I, when I go back to work, if I can recover, I'll work overtime and I will pay you back. I said, but will you please just agree to see me right now because I need help. And this guy, man, he didn't hesitate. He said, look, I don't care about money. I'm not in this to get paid. You don't have to pay me a dime. I'm not going to keep track of hours. Just get in here, and I'll, I'll help you. And, and he said, I'll see you right now. You know, come in right now. And so I did. I, I went down and uh, met with him that day, and he made all the difference. I mean, he absolutely saved my life. Um, I met him in his office. I met him in the waiting room. He came out and he shook my hand and he said, hey, you know, you sound pretty bad on the phone. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. <clears throat> Keep going. I just want to make sure that we know 
and this is probably a good place to talk about taking a break. Yeah, yeah. Because we're gonna yeah. there's enough here that we're gonna split this up, and uh, we're actually gonna have Mark on the show next week with you. Yes. So I'm very. Mean, I, I want to pick it up right where we're at, where he meets you for the first time, and and okay. just kind of go from there. Perfect. Yeah, this guy taught me so much about mental health help that I feel really all first responders should know. Um, so I've done a few podcasts, but it, it occurred to me that, it, like you said, man, I don't think people care about me so much. But no, 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 they don't care not, about me. They don't care about me. They care about. Um, well, for me, I just I think. The, the real value is is learning from him because he truly understands first responders and and has done a lot to help us. So I'm I'm glad that he's going to be on the show with me next week. It's going to be awesome. So yeah, we'll pick it up there. I meet him in his office, and then next time I talk to you, uh, I will have Dr. Former with me, and we'll share our story together. Nice, very good. Now, if you don't awesome. mind, I do want to stick. I want I do want you to stick around a little bit more for this one. Because you you okay. owe me uh you owe me a Ron Burgundy story. Uh, <laughs> I haven't forgot. Okay, so, first of all, Will Ferrell, I love that guy to death. He makes the funniest movies on the planet. But when he made uh, Anchorman and he based it in San Diego, and then he said, you know, he's with uh, Christina Applegate, and she said, you know, San Diego, and he said, yeah, San Diego means a whale's vagina. That mother. God, everywhere I go, across the world when I travel, I'll meet somebody in Marrakesh, and I'm like, yeah, I'm from San Diego, and they go, oh, a whale's vagina, and I'm like, God, that guy, <laughs> he's just, he has no idea what he did to my city, but he, uh, he came through San Diego, and this was, I think, like in 2017, I forget, but it was a couple years ago. He was in San Diego at a stand-up comedy club. He did an entire routine as Ron Burgundy, which, of course, the city just flipped out, man. I love that guy, and he's so damn funny. Well, he was driving home to L.A., and he was in a minor fender bender on the freeway. And so all the cars are pulled over to the side, and they're exchanging information. And some buddy of mine in the fire engine pulled up, to see if anybody needed help. And so they get out of the fire engine and who is there but Ron Burgundy and he stayed in character the whole time. And so these guys were talking to him, trying to do an assessment on him and he, he went on Burgundy and my buddies, man, they were dying laughing. I mean, they could not keep a straight face. And they said it's one of the highlights of their career is getting to do a medical aid on Ron Burgundy himself. So. Uh, the fact that he ruined my city with the whale's vagina joke, uh, he he renewed himself by uh, <laughs> being Ron Burgundy on a traffic accident. So. I, I just thought that when you told me that the first night we met, just I thought it was so hilarious because I could just picture pulling up on a scene, just like yes. you said, <laughs> and yes. there's Will Ferrell, <laughs> but he stays in character, and he's the kind of guy that would do that. So he would, yes. I just... I mean, yes. I can, just the way you laid it out, it's in my head. I can picture it, and it's it's uh, wonderful. Me too, and I'm so insanely jealous that I didn't get to be the guy that ran on him. And I mean, I don't think I would have been able to answer what, or ask one question. I would have been laughing my ass off. Uh, but can you imagine taking a blood pressure on Ron Burgundy? That would have been so great. Oh, God. 
So anyway, yeah, well, that's my Ron Burgundy story. And I wasn't even there, but it's still a great story. It's still a good story. It's still. So yeah. I've got I've got the 25 random questions. I kind of warned you about them earlier on. Um, yeah. This week, I want to I want to do a few of these with you. And then next week, we'll put Mark on the spot and have him answer some of these. Mark. All right. I How's that? So so everything is listed one through 25. You just got to just throw me out a number and we'll go from there. All right. Uh, let's start with number one. What was the first job you ever had? Oh, God. All right. So I grew up in L.A. Uh, we have a theme park there, Six Flags Magic Mountain. Um, the largest employer in that in that area and mostly hire, you know, high school kids. So I was 16 years old and I got picked up uh, working at Magic Mountain. They put me uh, in carnival games. So my first job, I'm wearing a pink shirt and a blue bow tie, and I am, you know, selling the rings that you throw on bottles, and you know you got to try to make a basket, and the hoop is about the same size as the ball. Uh, so that was my first ever job in LA, in San Santa Clarita, in the summer. It gets to be like 110, um, so I was sweating my balls off. 110 degree heat, wearing a pink shirt and a blue bow tie. Uh, doing carnival games, so I don't often tell people at the firehouse that because the next thing you know they're going to call you Carney. Yes, exactly, exactly. So yeah, I, I don't often share that information, but yeah, my first job ever, I was a Carney. It's, at, it's uh, out. It's out now. <laughs> it's too, too. It's gone. It's over with for you. Uh, yeah. Dang it! I should uh. have said number one. <laughs> All right. What's the number next five. one? Number five. five. Do you have a favorite quote? Ooh, wow. Do I have a favorite quote? Um, wow, I do. I just got to think about it for a second. Let me get back to you on that one. Uh, let's do 12. That's number 12. All right. You got you got to choose one here: zoo or amusement park. <laughs> oh. Six flags. <laughs> That's easy. Zoo. I never want to go to amusement park again, ever. I'll take a zoo any day. <laughs> that was, that was San Diego cute. has the world famous San Diego Zoo, so we got a pretty uh, a pretty sweet gig here. And I got to tell you, on Heavy Rescue, we got to we every year have to certify on the gondolas. So the gondolas run over the top of the zoo, you know, and you they'll take you from one side of the zoo to the other. And so we go up, crawl up the telephone poles out onto those lines, and we go hand over hand on those lines. We we connect a pulley, and then we practice saving people out of the gondolas. Um, we do that every year as a training, and then the zoo has to have us do that. Um, so I was on the team full time for four years. I I trained every year to do it, and then. Six months after I left the team, I, you know, I went to another uh, fire station to do something different. They had a real-life uh, gondola emergency, and the team got to go up and save a bunch of people in real life. And I was so pissed that I missed out on the opportunity to, to do it in real life. So uh, the zoo always brings back good memories because we get to do that really cool rescue drill every year. Nice. All right, let's do one more. Yeah. If you can't, if you can't think of your favorite quote, let's do one more. 
Okay. Uh, 19. Do you have a special place you like to visit regularly? Don't say the zoo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, well, yeah. basically, basically the way it's, it's another way of saying, do you have a happy place? A happy place. <clears throat> yeah, so my home is, uh, I live an hour away from San Diego, and I have a little, it's a quarter acre, it's not very big. T- well, my wife works in uh, uh, yeah, not south, north. Um, <laughs> but my wife works as a in a plant nursery, and she has an amazing green throne. So she's turned our backyard into just this. I don't even know. I mean, it could probably be in a museum. It's just this beautiful backyard, and we have some chickens that lay eggs. Uh, and so coming home for me is a huge stress reliever. And sitting in my backyard and just watching the chickens graze and smell all the flowers that my wife planted, man, I could spend weeks in my backyard and never leave. So that's my favorite happy place, my backyard. Nice. All right. Yeah. Well, on that, I'll, I'll get you out of here. Um, once again, next yeah, week. Yeah, we went over time. No, no, it's, it was worth it. I mean, it's, it's a hell of a story. And uh, I think we can learn a lot from it, especially next week. So. We'll do part part two next week with uh, Mark Foreman, uh, your clinician, and uh, I'm I'm excited to bring him into the fold too and and talk about kind of in details about, you know, what he saw when he first got you and then how how he got you back to work and back to living again. Perfect. Yeah, he uh, absolutely saved my my bacon. Uh, I credit three people who saved my life. Alex who jumped in and got that guy off me. And then I credit Shooter, peer support, for directing me to, to the right place. And then Mark Foreman for treating me psychologically and getting me back to work. So uh, I'm excited to have you meet him next week. It'll be fun. Let me let me ask you real quick um, about Alex. Yeah. There was yeah. no video evidence of him getting stabbed, right? Uh, he, correct. Correct. Okay. So... So the joke is with him that you mess with him right oh, about his, his. Oh, there's no evidence. It never really happened. So okay, so yeah, you're. This is tragic. All right. Um, after my after meeting Mark Foreman and him helping me, I wrote an article for Jim's magazine because while Jim's is a national magazine, their headquarters is in San Diego, and I know the staff. And so I asked if I could write an article for them, and they said yes. And I wrote an article, and it did really, really well. Uh, it traveled internationally, and they translated into multiple languages. And it actually started my speaking uh, tours. You know, I got calls from organizations around the country asking if I would come share my story because they had read the article. Um, in fact, I think that's how I ended up in Ohio, is somebody read that article. So it you know, I became, I became known in my department as the mental health guy and people would come up to me all the time and congratulate me and, and say, you know, Hey, thanks for speaking up. Well, the funny thing is, is we would, you know, an ambulance would pull up on a medical aid and they would thank me and, and say, you know, they're so glad to see me healthy and well, and, you know, thanks for doing all the mental health stuff. Alex would be standing right next to me. And so they would get, you know, they go, Ben, you know, thanks, man. I'm so glad you're healthy. You know, great job. You know, see you later. And they drive away. 
And Alex would be just going, hey, what the hell, man? I was there. You know, I got stabbed. He got stabbed one and more time happened- than you. Exactly. But it happened so often that I started to mess with him. And I just go, hey, man, I don't know if you did get stabbed. Are you sure you got stabbed? And he would get really pissed. And it got to the point where, like, uh, we were at an event together for something else completely different. It was a fire event. We're at the fire hall. And and this lady, neither one of us had met. Alex and I said, you know, visiting. And this lady comes up, looks right at me, and she goes, I know who you are. And I said, who is that? And she said, well, you're the, you're the young man who was stabbed. And she goes, and you're really working hard to, to bring mental health awareness to the fire service. And Alex is standing right next to us. And so I couldn't help it. I said, well, ma'am, you know, being the only person stabbed that day, uh, I'm just grateful to be here. And I'm grateful that I was able to, to make a good thing out of a bad thing. And she has no idea, but I'm just totally messing with Alex. And she says, oh, I know. And I go, yeah, being the only survivor of that day was just brutal. And she goes, yeah, I'm sure it was. She goes, well, thanks. And she walked away. And Alex turned to me, man, and the look on his eyes, he was so pissed. And I'm like, it's official, man. You didn't get stabbed. And he's like, this is bullshit. So then the best part of that is this is two years later. He and I have both promoted to engineer. We we get a call for a giant structure fire. It's a second alarm. He and his team were like the – first or second in engine on scene. And they had gone interior, done a search, and this building, it was a, a warehouse for vehicles, but next to it was a veterinary hospital. And it had caught fire too. So he and his team had gone in and they had saved like three dogs and four cats. And they had them all and they're bringing them out. And I, my engine company showed up late to the scene. We were on the second alarm, so we came in late. And they had me pumping into a truck to do a water tower. While Alex is coming out, they're covered in soot, right? He and his team, and they've got all these dogs and cats. And I said, hey, man, throw those dogs and cats in my, in my rig. Because and, and, they didn't know where to put them. So I said, here, you know, throw them with me. So they put all these dogs and cats in my rig, and, and he and his team go back to work. Well, I'm pumping for like an hour, hour and a half, just pumping water. I'm bored out of my mind, you know, just waiting for this fire to go out. And the animal shelter shows up, right? The, the Humane Society or whatever shows up. And they're walking around. They said, hey, we heard there's dogs and cats that need to come with us, you know, until their, their owners can pick them up. And I said, oh, yeah, man, they're in my rig. You know, I've got them. And she said, okay, cool. Will you help me? And I said, no problem. Now, keep in mind, the media has been there for, for hours filming, and they're bored out of their minds, and they're tired of filming. So... All of a sudden, I, I pick up a dog. It's like a golden retriever. And I'm walking with this golden retriever with this woman. And we're walking to her rig to put all these dogs in her car. Well, the media sees that. And they absolutely, like, just, just run over with their cameras and they're filming. Well, Alex, he and his team were, were rehabbing. They were cleaning up. And they saw the dogs and cats getting taken over to the, the car. And Alex comes next to me and goes, hey, man, you know, do you want help? I said, yeah, did all these dogs and cats you saved, they need to go in this lady's car. She's going to take him to the shelter. And he goes, oh, okay. And so he picks up a dog. And he's walking right next to me. And we're, we walk across the street to put these dogs. Well, the, the cameras are just in our face. So sure enough, the next morning, the, in the paper on the front page is a picture of me holding this dog. And the headline is, Firefighters Saves Dog in Fire. 
And in the picture, you can see Alex's arm, but not Alex. It's just me holding this dog. Alex is the one that saved the damn dog, but I'm in the headlines. I get, I get all the credit. It says, firefighter saves dog. So I immediately called Alex, and I go, hey, man, I don't think you saved those dogs. I think it was just me. And he was so pissed. I'm uh I'm Ben. I'm starting to see a pattern here. <laughs> it's an absolute pattern. He does all the work. I get all the credit. So yeah, it's a running joke with this poor guy, man. He keeps doing all these amazing things, and then I get all the credit. So it's pretty funny. Right. Well, hey, I'll get you out of here on this. I uh, I look forward to talking to you um, here soon with uh, your buddy Mark Foreman. Sounds good, buddy. All right, take care until then. Everybody else, have a good week, and uh, thanks for listening to The 25 Live. That's, that's, my, that's my radio voice. I like it. I like it. It's good. Right. I don't have a radio voice. <laughs> you, you should, because neither one of us are pretty. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> hey, speak for yourself. You saw uh, a picture of me. Oh, God. I'm a dick. <laughs> I'm a dick. Sorry. Sorry.